0: The Weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. Oh, my apologies for the hiatus. It's been a rough couple weeks for the Weekly Demon. Actually, last Sunday morning, my mom had been ill for a while, and last Sunday morning I would recorded the podcast and I was in the middle of editing it. Got a call that my mom wasn't doing well. I had to get to Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. By the time we got to the hospital, said she had passed and we came back home. And then that was just an awful week. Now, don't turn out the podcast. I'm not going to be talking about my mom's death. Um, Suffice to say, um, my brothers and I were all real tight with my mom. Um, It hit all of us really, really hard. And quite frankly, doing this podcast and doing just about anything else really... uh, (laughs) It just seemed pointless, to be honest with you. Just, it ain't pointless, I don't know. I mean, you all, we've all gone through grief. People deal with grief differently. It's just, the past week, nothing else seemed, seemed really worth dealing with. And, you know, there was a lot of other things I had to deal with. (laughs) You know, funeral arrangements. People coming from out of town. You know, it was a crazy, crazy week, so... But I know my mom Rita would want me to jump back in the jump back in the saddle. She liked listening to the podcast. Uh She was eighty four, so sometimes she had trouble <laughs> figuring out the software. But when she could get the play, she liked listening to it. So it's so I'm gonna keep going. Obviously, life life moves on. Yeah, I will talk a little bit about my mom. I'm not gonna talk about her great qualities and things like that. She had an, an abundance, uh, to say the least. But but I'm gonna talk a little bit about her upbringing because. It's it's interesting from an American history standpoint. It's a snapshot of Appalachia. She was born in a place called Farmers, Kentucky. This name might be a little misleading. It's, it's not as ritzy as it sounds. <laughs> Farmers, Kentucky. <laughs> my mom, uh, she went back uh, years later with my father, and she didn't really want to. And not like you know, She didn't hate the place, but she said it was just an awful, awful place. Just poverty. But my dad really wanted to go back and see where she was born, so they went back and all back in the 1980s or whatever. And I don't think she even knew any of her relatives at that point. But they're like, "Yeah, it's hardcore Appalachia." <laughs> it's, you know, I'm guessing it's probably about an hour from the West Virginia border. You know, they're in north northeast Kentucky. You know, probably an hour um, if you have a freeway. From what I can tell from the map, eh, there may not be a freeway and just have all those winding roads you have throughout Appalachia. So, what should be an hour drive on a freeway. May take three hours to get to West Virginia from what I could tell. I'd love to go check it out sometime. I may have to make a, make a pilgrimage down there. But it's fascinating what you're dealing with. 1930s. 1930s Appalachia. Cause she was born in 1935. Her mom was 14 years old when she got married. <laughs> she married a guy who was 30. <laughs> this is give you a different sense of the times. And, you know, people are kind of shocked when they talk about that, you know, around the funeral. And, and I was like, hey, it's not that big of a deal. It's just like Romeo and Juliet. But instead of Romeo, you have Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I don't know much about my grandfather because he died when my mom was two. And the guy she then married packed her up with my, with my biological grandmother. And they moved to Detroit in the 1940s to work in the munitions plants. And that was part of the great migration north. And I brought a, a lot of blacks to the north. I brought a lot of poor whites to the north. And those poor whites, is, um, that's, that's my roots on my mom's side. Batcham came to Detroit. When the bigger batch went to Muncie, uh, Muncie, Indiana, Muncie is where Ball State University is. Whenever we went back every year for, for class, uh, for family reunions, we'd go down to Muncie, Indiana, or a place called Green Castle, which is just outside Muncie. And nicest, nicest freaking people in the world. I never liked going, but it wasn't because of the people. It was just, it was like a long freaking drive. <laughs> kind of funny. We'd go to the 1970s. It was, all, it was always Memorial Day weekend. That Sunday of Memorial Day weekend was the family reunion. And we'd go there, and my mom's uncles and that of family, they would listen to the Indianapolis 500 on the radio. <laughs> so it'd be blaring in their little corner. It'd be blaring the whole time. They'd listening to this. They'd to Indianapolis 500. And I can barely watch it, but <laughs> much less listen to it. But everyone had this. This, I thought, I thought it was a southern accent, but it's not a southern accent. It's, it's a hillbilly accent. And everyone on that side of the family had it. Even though I grew up and still live less than a mile from the Indiana border, when I was a kid, I thought everyone in Indiana talked like that. I thought it was kind of a southern state. I, mean, I knew geographically it wasn't, but for whatever reason, when you cross that border <laughs> a mile south of me, everyone talks that accent. And it was just kind of a, uh, I guess like a tacit assumption I always had growing up. So I was in law school and I got to be good friends with a guy from Muncie. He was talking about, uh, some friends of his. They, they, they're from Muncie, Tucky. And I said, Muncie, why do you call it Muncie, He goes, because of all the Kentucky hillbillies that moved up here during the war and took over Muncie, basically. He goes, everyone in Muncie has this effed up hillbilly accent. <laughs> And I was like, hey, those are those are my relatives. They're good people. He goes, hey, he goes, I married one of them. He goes, because <laughs> I'm not saying they're bad people. He goes, but they talk with that hillbilly accent, <laughs> and so it all came together for me. He's like, ah, oh, so I'm you know, 23 years old, and like, oh, now I understand, kind of. Yeah, but mom, uh, she went to Detroit, you know, with her with her stepfather and her mother. They had three other children, and you know, listen to my mom's story, but just, even as a young girl, my and my stepfather, he's a decent guy. Um, Kind of rougher on the edges, and growing up, he always expected more of my mom. Kind of like, "Hey, you're not my daughter. <laughs> um, I love you just fine." He goes, "But you're older than my children. You know, they, you know, than your half siblings." And so, my mom was always expected to work and to pay for everything. I mean, he 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 covered the bare basics. Um, well, he covered uh like gave her a house and food uh would working you know at GM or Ford wherever he worked, one of the munitions factories and then, you know, in the car car industry. But would buy none of her clothes other than maybe I think she, my mom said he always supplied her with shoes. And so my mom worked you know one or two jobs throughout high school she had good grades throughout high school. She's a very attractive girl, um so she had to socialize the best she could, but for the most part, no, she couldn't have much of a socialize. She had to work constantly. It was kind of like a Cinderella type thing. You know, except for my, again, my step grandfather was not a bad man. Just my mom always knew that she was kind of the outlier. So it was kind of sad in that way. But she was no. She was pop. Pop took care of me, and and pop did love me. But you know, just just kind of different. You know, in today's world, I think if he asked pop, he'd be like, "Oh, Rita, Rita's great. I love Rita, Um, but she's not mine." I think that's I think that's what would have been his, his reaction nineteen fifties. And you know, people don't talk about that. I mean, you can't talk about that way now in these blended families where this step-grand, a step-parent is, is a real creep, you can't talk like that, I think my, I think my step-grandfather, who I always knew as my grandfather, I always really, really liked him, I think he'd be like, well, of course, I don't love her quite as much as my own, you know, but I love her, (laughs) I think that, and my mom's like, hey, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, wasn't really, it was a hard life, but it wasn't a bad life, and again, just, just different mores, different ways of looking at things, when, when pop, my, my pop came down with, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease in the nineteen eighties, you know, he, he came to our house to live as, as he slowly died. You know, there was a very, you know, high level of affection for what he did for my mom. Even though, again, not quite they like, didn't necessarily love her quite as much as he did his other children. Oh to be honest with you, I think that shifted over the years. I think he became more fond of my mom as she got older. But then she met my dad. Uh you know, they were working in the first national bank building in Detroit. And I want to say, well, my dad was like the prince of Cinderella, but that exaggerate my mom's situation and it'd also <laughs> exaggerate my dad. I like to say, well, my dad was like the court jester. Because <laughs> he liked to joke around a lot and he, I don't think he would call him a prince, but my dad was, uh, that heavy duty smart, uh, heavy duty hard worker. i not even ambitious. I mean, I don't think my dad ever really wanted to make a ton of money, but, but the guy just, Loved to work, and he was freaking smart as a whip. I, I could tell you stories about how smart this guy was, and it'd blow your mind. Uh, people still talk about it around my small town his his facility with numbers and other things, and his grasp of history and whatnot. But and so, yeah, he uh, my dad made good money, brought it down to my small hometown where we still live, and provided for it very well. And she had a a great you know last two thirds of her life. You know, she may got off to a rough start for the first twenty or so years, but. The last uh, fifty years of her life were 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 charmed, I, I think. So, you know, dealing dealing with uh, grief and death is it's just tough. And I'm not to talk about it because there's a bajillion books out there, and it's it, it's and probably you know two percent of them are worth reading because <laughs> it is a tough thing. But what I really hate is just it's just the it's the the, the push pull. You know, I had to keep my law office my law practice on the rails. I couldn't just take off, especially since my mom was sick the week before. So I was, the week before, it was highly, highly distracting with like hundreds of text messages every day, getting updates, having to go to Detroit to see her. It was just, the week before was, was tough in and of itself. And then then she, she actually died. And I was like, I got to go to the law office and keep things on the rails. But then, you know, everything else, you know, so I had the produce site where I grow tomatoes and lettuce and flowers you know, zero sales, zero harvest, that stuff is gone, and that's, that's, that's nothing. I mean, it's like, who cares? You know, so you lost, you know, 200 bucks worth of flower sales or, <laughs> lettuce sales, like, I really couldn't care less. But one thing that really hit me though is, you know, I, I talked earlier about the hour of power, as I, I call it. I, I hate that term, but that's what I call it. You know, there is no hour of power in the morning, and the one or two mornings I came down to try to concentrate, no ability to concentrate whatsoever. And what was bizarre it wasn't all my mom. It was just all of everything. I mean, as like I you said your your mind is so distracted with something like this happens. I, c- I couldn't focus on the smallest task. I had I had to do some work for my mom's estate. I had three simple documents that each of my brothers. I had three brothers. Each of them had to sign off on it, and they're identical documents. This is this this is like one of the easiest legal things I can do. And all three documents, I printed them out and read them. I had all three of them wrong. <laughs> you know, I just had the names transposed and my brother's phone number on this one on this brother's. It was, it was unbelievable. And I was just like, wow, I just, you know, and I was feeling pretty good. That was like Thursday. So I was, you know, I felt like I was kind of getting over it at that point. And, and like I said, it's like the simplest tasks are hard to deal with. So hopefully this podcast doesn't show it and it won't because as I mentioned, I had this podcast recorded. Last week, when the call came in, my mom was ill. So after this segment, the rest of the podcast will be stuff I recorded when I was mostly in my right mind. Again, I was worried about my mom because she seemed like she wasn't doing well. But at that point, I didn't realize the full gravity of what was going on until that call came in. So the rest of the podcast will be regular fare. That's not much better, Shesky. Oh, <laughs> maybe not, but I hope it'll be pretty decent. By the way, just one quick thing. I've been so distracted intellectually, so to speak, or mentally. I I couldn't go back to my regular studies, you know, the the Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and those thinkers and things like that. I I couldn't, I couldn't jump back into what I call my, my main emphasis of study these days. So I picked up a couple books from my dad's house by Thomas Sowell. And one of them is Conquest and Cultures. And I started reading that. And it's like, my gosh. I mean, I mean, Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, this guy is the man. I mean, I just picked up this book and started reading it at random, just to get my mind off all the other crap, and and knew I couldn't really do any serious reading. And I was, I was, I was engrossed immediately. This guy, and again, I'm I'm talking specifically here about conquests and cultures, but it's pretty much any book this guy writes, although he has some hardcore economic books. You couldn't do do this with those books. But just picking this book up and reading at random, reading two or three pages, I'm immediately engrossed. Here, for instance, I was engrossed by his explanation of why Africa sucks. (laughs) He basically said, this is a massive continent that is wholly disfavored by the geographic gods. (laughs) He has waterways, Are basically non-existence. He he just goes through and talks about how even the Nile has its limitations, although that's a pretty good waterway, but the rest of it, really, the the rivers mean nothing. They don't help much. He goes, they have no, like, or very few natural harbors. He points out at one point that Europe, 30% of Europe is either islands or peninsulas, you know, making it very easy for ships to go in. He goes, in Africa, it's less than three percent. You, know, you just don't have these natural inlets. He said the southern half of Africa. He goes, you can't get a ship in at all. He goes because the the water's shallow going all the way out. I don't know how, how far out, but he goes. So the big ships who are bringing in cargo or want to get cargo, you know, buy stuff, they can't pull into a dock like they can in every other continent, every other continent. You have numerous bays or harbors you can pull into because you don't have that in southern Africa. You gotta anchor way out and then have smaller ships bring the cargo and bring the cargo out, which is like very expensive. And then he starts going to other things. You know, like, he basically says, you know, just the waterways alone have disfavored Africa. That's he hasn't said this, but I think that's where he's going with it. He's like that's one reason this this place just can't be lifted out of poverty or it's been really, really hard. Um, then he goes into other things about, you know, the insects that don't, don't die off because they don't get, you know, cold weather. And he goes through other things as well. But again, he just, he just has a knack for just distilling really, really interesting facts and applying them in a pithy way. Again, I I can't say enough about Thomas Sowell. He's, you know, he, he's still alive. I thought he had died, but he's still alive and he's still, he's still producing. If anything about Thomas Sowell is worth reading, then. I recommend. It. I want to revisit somewhat briefly the the whole LSD thing. It, I want to get into this last week, but just the podcast was running long as it was, so I just didn't get a chance to. So, quick recap of last week: I kind of riffed off Joe Rogan's statement that you know LSD is the ultimate ego dissolver under the effects of LSD, the ego dissolves. And I said, I like that. Um, again, I've never even seen LSD, much less taken it. But the concept of the ego dissolving is like a, a Zen-type concept because dissolve is an intransitive verb. I mean, it has no object. When You, you don't lay down, okay? You lie down because lie is an intransitive verb and it's something you're doing upon yourself. There is no object of the verb. And so in a way, when you say the ego dissolves, you're saying there is no object, there is no goal. It's just, it, it acts upon itself and dissolves. And I said, that's, that's kind of like what makes LSD like, uh, zen mode. <laughs> you know, zen mode on steroids. Zen mode on acid. <laughs> it, it just, it makes it ex- like extreme zen. The, the subject yourself has dissolved and it's not latching onto an object. So you're in this, 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 um, this middle area, and you're kind of hovering there. When you're in this hovering area, you know, this Zen mode area, you're probably coming to union in some ways with a thing, um, mystical theologians like Meister Eckhart called the ground. It's like the transcendent being that, that, again, you can't reason to. And keep in mind, reasoning applies to yourself or to objects. If you're not really latched on either one, you're kind of transcending or surpassing or going behind, going beyond. I don't care how you want to put it. You're going beyond reasoning. When you're not in the subject-object mode, you're beyond the reasoning mode. It's like when you go beyond time and space, you're beyond reason. We can't get our head around things that aren't in time and space. So when you're not in subject-object or you're not in time or space, you've, you've uh, gone beyond the fear of reason. Now, I'm sure some people say, "Well, there's no such thing," you know, because I can't understand it, therefore it doesn't exist. And it's like, "Well, you're you're missing a huge, huge mystical literature <laughs> from from every faith tradition, and you're even ignoring your own mystical experiences, like when you see a sunset and things like that. Everyone has these type of experiences that you can't even reason to, you don't understand where they're coming from, and not even necessarily emotional. You just kind of transcended, but no matter. I firmly believe, and I think anyone who's honest with themselves, firmly believe that there is a sphere of existence that is not reasonable. It's not rational, so to speak. It transcends it. You know, one of the greatest discursive reasoning philosophers of all time was St. Thomas Aquinas. He is a firm believer that you have to use natural philosophy unaided by revelation, unaided by scripture, to, to come to philosophical truths. And towards the end of his life, around 1273, 1274, right around there, he had some massive mystical experience where he put his pen aside and said, you know, everything I've written seems like straw. Almost like, you know, I've, I've been reasoning my entire life. Well, he was only 49 years old, and it's amazing what his output was. But I've been reasoning my whole life, and then I saw this, and I can reason no more. He, can, he didn't say that. He said, basically, I can write no more. And at I think a reasonable speculation on that is not that his wrist hurt. <laughs> it's that mentally he had nothing else he could really say. The process of reasoning fell short to what he saw in the mystical experience at Mass. What I want to draw a connection to today, kind of circling back there, I want to, I want to read this quote from a writer from 1944. It said, quote, Direct knowledge of the ground cannot be had except by union. And union can be achieved only by annihilation of the self-regarding ego, unquote. And this is in a book called The Perennial Philosophy. And he's kind of exploring these concepts. And he, he said, look, you're not going to find a spiritual calculus. You know, calculus is very reasonable. He goes, you're not going to find a spiritual calculus. He goes, you have to look at the, um, I think he called them the, the empirical theologians. You know, the people who had the experiences, you see what they've done throughout all the faith traditions. And then you start seeing certain truths emerge that are going to be paradoxical, that are going to transcend reason. And he goes, and when you do that, you, know, you might start approaching union with the ground, or he you call the transcendent, or reach union with God, or reach union with Jesus Christ, however you want to put it. And then he explores throughout this book the different ways of doing that. Ten years later, this guy became an early pioneer and like a prophet of LSD. It's Aldous Huxley. And I find this absolutely fascinating. So, Huxley, back in, this book was published in 1944, The Perennial Philosophy, but so I'm guessing he wrote those words in like 42, 1943, right around there. And he, he'd already basically come to these conclusions, even though he, he was, I don't think he was an atheist, but he was, I mean, the man was not a believer in any Christian sense whatsoever. I don't exactly know what his, what his uh, religious outlook was but clearly not a believer in any conventional sense but he recognized hey there's something there's something out there there's something that transcends our ability to reason to it Now, I think people like Joe Rogan who take LSD they're seeing there's something more out there than we can necessarily reason to Now, I just that connection fascinating and we're going to talk a little bit more about LSD in the next segment cyber run, don't walk, cyber run to Tom Woods show and download episode 1494, it came out last week it's an interview with Stephen Kinzer it's called the CIA and mind control now, I'm listening to this in my car and I'm just like, boy this Kinzer sounds like kind of a nut I mean, these are some really bizarre things he's saying you know, I was like, yeah, this is, this is some extremist and I'm not sure I believe it so then but it, but it was so fast I went back and started listening to parts of it again. And I thought, I'm going to look up this book, he's talking this book about C, the CIA and mind control experiments, and I thought this guy is solid as hell. I mean, he's a journalism professor at Northwestern. He wrote for the New York Times and Boston Globe for 20 years. He has mainstream credentials of the Yin Yang, and he wrote this book called "Poisoner in Chief," Sidney Gottlieb. And the CIA search for mind control. Now I and was really blown away. I was like, that, this stuff is all freaking true. So, it, it's all about this guy named Sidney Gottlieb, who, like, in the, at nights when he was home, he was like a, uh, he called him a proto hippie. You know, proto, by the way, means, yeah, like ahead of your time. If you're a neo hippie, that means you're kind of going back to an earlier time, so, a proto hippie would have been someone before the 1960s who lived like a hippie. A neo hippie would be someone today who lives like a hippie. So he's called him a proto hippie. Said that like, he meditated at night. He grew his own vegetables and was really into gardening. Led a very simple existence like in a cabin, like off the grid. But by day, he was like objectively evil. I mean, he, he was out to literally destroy people's minds and then rebuild them. And I guess it came from a 1949 trial of a Catholic cardinal. I can't even pronounce the name. They mentioned it, Menzinsi, Joseph Menzinsi, And to be honest with you, I was ignorant about this, where he'd said things that the Pope couldn't believe the cardinal was saying it in favor of of the Soviet Union. And they said he must have been brainwashed. This must be mind control by the Soviet Union. And apparently that got the CIA off and running, thinking, hey, it must be possible to do mind control, you know, the Manchurian candidate type thing. And Sidney Gottlieb, he was like an expert poisoner, and then he branched off into mind control. To destroy people's minds, he would, like, give them massive doses of LSD. I mean, I, I, I forget what he said. He goes, go listen to the podcast. He lays it out, but it's that's like 200 hits of LSD over the course of 70 days or something like that. He was literally trying to... To destroy people's minds, and he did a lot of on on uh, prisoners. And uh, he basically, said, you know, you guys are going to be part of this experiment. I don't know if they gave them extra cigarettes or, <laughs> or what, but I doubt they had much of a choice. You know what? Basically, he discovered by the way is yes, you can destroy a person's mind with drugs, LSD, and stuff like that, but you can't rebuild it. That was the final conclusion. Kinzer recounts how the CIA brought LSD to America. I guess they brought up the entire the Swiss laboratory that makes it. See, the CIA bought up their entire stock and bought it to the United States. And from there, it made its way to the streets. You know, John Lennon said one time, you know, asked about LSD, he goes, Well, let's not forget to thank the CIA. The counterculture in the 1960s, they knew where the LSD came from. I guess they didn't know early on. They didn't realize it was from the CIA, but information got out there that all came through Sidney Gottlieb. He convinced the CIA to buy up the entire stock, and then the stock made its way to the streets somehow. I don't know the story. But if you get a chance, go there and listen to that podcast. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I really want to buy the book, but I know it well. I won't get around to reading the entire thing. I'll probably read the first couple chapters and get pulled away someplace else. But it's an absolutely fascinating podcast. I'm sure the book is even better. Let's do some lightning segments. So I'm listening to a podcast by Russ Roberts, Econ Talk. It's, it's a wildly popular podcast. If you're not listening to it yet... You got to give it a try. It's, it's probably not everyone's cup of tea, but I, I think it's excellent. And he recounts this conversation with A.J. Jacobs. And A.J. Jacobs is an author I, I really like. him. I haven't read a ton of this stuff, but he does like, um, like stunt journalism. <laughs> so he read, for instance, the Encyclopedia Britannica from page one to the last page, like all 28 volumes of it. And then he wrote a book called The Know-It-All. Um, it's about his experience of trying to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, not trying; he actually did it, and he just goes through, and he just—it's—it's re- autobiographical, and then how things he's reading the encyclopedia kind of tied into his everyday life. Interesting facts that he learned from reading the encyclopedia, and its just a real fun book. He also spent a year trying to live like an Orthodox Jew, but exactly in accordance with the Old Testament. <laughs> I guess that was pretty funny. Uh, he he spent a period of time doing something that I think is really fascinating, but doing no multitasking at all. And I read some excerpts from the book there, and I heard a podcast or two, and he was talking about it, but like absolutely nothing. So, you know, he's he's going to the grocery store, and he's waiting in line to pay for his groceries. He just has to keep telling himself, I'm buying groceries, I'm buying groceries, not let his mind wander. You know, not read the National Enquirer at the the, the checkout. And he talked about, you know, various mental vistas this opened up for him. But anyway, Russ Roberts mentions that A.J. Jacobs keeps a one thing file. And I found that concept fascinating. So I went back and listened to the A.J. Jacobs podcast with, with Russ Roberts. And he basically says that he writes down, quote, one thing I remember from a meal, one thing I remember from a conversation, a book a podcast, unquote. He's looking for that one thing from whatever type of mental interaction it is that he finds most interesting or memorable. He said he keeps entire file of these things. And He said, you know, sometimes I write down two or three things. And I I think it's a great idea. So I've started doing it, and I'd urge you to, although I can't personally vouch for it. I know that A.J. Jacobs and Russ Roberts, two very successful men, vouch for the system, so... And I've actually went through and wrote down some things in the past week that have stood out to me, and this light segment is going to be all my first entries into the one thing file. So, the Joe Rogan podcast with Ron Zombie. Ron Zombie is a rock star and a movie producer of horror films. He wanted to make a movie about the Broad Street Boys. These were the early nineteen seventies Philadelphia Flyers. Who are just the NHL bad boys? He said they got manhandled as a franchise. Some team like really beat him up on the ice in the late 60s or early 70s. And Mantra said never again. And they assembled a team that was so freaking mean and tough that players and other teams would sit the games out. They'd, they'd fake the flu, <laughs> fake an injury, so they wouldn't have to play these guys. I guess one of them more like a Nazi skull cap. And they're so mean and fierce, but could also play hockey. They actually end up winning the Stanley Cup. He said it's an absolutely fascinating story. He said there's a documentary out there about the Broad Street Boys. He said you gotta check it out, and it's definitely on my list of things to look at. Listen to the Bill Burr Monday Morning podcast. He mentions he went to the Iron Maiden concert, and he loved Iron Maiden, which which really struck me because I I could never stand Iron Maiden. I I was never really into that really really hard rock. But he made a reference, it just absolutely cracked me up. He, he mentioned that he was on day 300 of not, not drinking at all. He goes, and he goes, I really miss it. He goes, but he goes, it's kind of fun being sober at these things, especially at this thing where there are a ton of people. <laughs> he said, ton of people really getting after it. He goes, God bless them. <laughs> he said at one point, he goes, I'm trying to go to the bathroom, and, and there's a drunk guy walking towards me, and I can't get out of his way. He goes, because... A drunk guy walking is like a bat flying. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I was reading through some notes from my retreat up down at Gethsemane last June. I ran across a quote I wrote down from Thomas Merton's book on the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers, these are the, the men and some women who went and lived in the desert in the 4th century. In Egypt, Palestine, place like that out in the desert to get away from civilization. And he wrote down a quote from Abba Agathon that said, when Jesus commands in the Gospels good fruit, Abba Agathon said, that means custody of the mind. Now I looked up another translation of that Abba Agathon quote, and he he didn't translate like Merton did, you know, the good fruit is custody of the mind, but the the translation wasn't inconsistent, and custody of the mind, you know, if I point out here, I, I think is absolutely crucial to good living. Your world starts in your head. And you have all sorts of you know feel good type self improvement books will tell you this, but it's very true on a, on a much deeper level, and that's why you've heard me say repeatedly try to get in the habit of saying thanks at all times. You know, last week I said it, it could shift your consciousness like LSD, a very 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 mild LSD, but kind of shift your consciousness. And cussed in mind would entail this this habit of giving thanks and not thinking negative things, not thinking evil thoughts. So a good friend of mine tells me that a co-worker gently scolded him for not being uh, better read on current events. He's like, you know, you really got to keep up with current events. You know, and no. <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe with Naseem Taleb that we're just inundated with current events. You know, the man who thinks he's educated because he reads the New York Times every morning is a buffoon. You know, Naseem Taleb. You know, he points out that he never reads the news. He said, "If it's newsworthy, it will reach my ears," and he's absolutely right. I I, I get on Drudge every morning. And I yeah, I look at kind of like the headlines, but that's really not to be too graphic. That's just during my morning constitution, so to speak. It's other than that, I, I never ever read the freaking news. I just I just don't care. And I believe with Nassim Taleb that um, if it's if it's important, I'm going to hear about it, and then I can read about it in more detail at that time. So my local Catholic church has pretty much been taken over by the Mexicans. <laughs> I mean, the bishop has, I, I think, consciously decided to drive the whites out and make it into Mexican parish, and I respect that. Um, the, the parish have been kind of moribund for years, and I think you know the bishop has basically two choices: I can have a thriving Mexican parish with a ton of good Mexicans and devout Mexicans and hard-working Mexicans who will make this into a thriving parish center. Or I can try to keep it kind of like this half-mixed, half-white, half-Mexican, moribund, schizophrenic-type, you know, poor church. And I don't mean poor, like, money-wise. I'm just talking spiritually poor. Just, it, just, it just sucks. And I think he's throwing in and said, nope, we're going Mexican. It's going to be like the, uh, the hallmark of of a Hispanic, of an Hispanic parish in our Southwest Michigan diocese, and and not intentionally but knowingly saying "screw the whites," and so we kind of shoved out. And I and I'm okay with it. I really am. I've started occasion going to the four o'clock Spanish mass, even though I can't understand that much of it, and I'd really really enjoy it. Kind of like I'm in mean, the old Latin mass, right? So the people couldn't understand anything. And again, there's something about it. Uh, the music's really charming. I, I find it very, very good. Um, and I can't understand any of the homily, but I, I take the Liturgy of the Hours and read it during it. But I was still struggling, because if you go into your confession books, it, it'll say things like, one thing you have to confess is being intentionally distracted during Mass. It's like, well, if I'm going to Mass, I literally cannot understand. <laughs> you know? And about half the Mass itself put aside the Sermon. But I'm going to say, not half, I'm going to say about a third of the Mass itself, there is no translation. You know, we have these missalettes, you can be English on the left-hand side, then Spanish on the right. So about two-thirds of the Mass itself I can follow along with, all the readings, about half of the prayers, but none of the sermon, which goes on for like 15 minutes, I can't pick up any of that. Um, And then the announcements at the end, I can't understand, but that's not part of the Mass, and they go on way too long anyway, though they should be like 30 seconds, but... Anyway, so I texted a friend of mine who's praying knowledge. I said, Do you think it's okay to go to the Spanish Mass like this? He went back, Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? And I said, You know, the attention distracted during Mass. He goes, No, I don't see a problem at no. all. He goes, <laughs> He said, In fact, he goes, You may even pray better. <laughs> and my response was, well, I can't pray any worse. I go to a faith healer. <laughs> That's not true. I go to a massage therapist. Who, he has a, a weird school of uh, massage called fascia release or something like that, myofascia, whatever. A couple of good friends of mine swear by this guy, and I've had pretty good luck with him as well. But very, um, kind of like a very spiritual type healing. He, he kind of, he's kind of a, you gonna know, He's a different kind of guy, kinda of definitely marches to the tune of his own drummer and has a different outlook on things, but you know, he, he doesn't trust GMO foods and all that stuff. Kind of like a kinda of like neo hippie, <laughs> you might call him. But I really like him and I think he knows what he's doing. And he has just counseling me about, you know, is everything in moderation. Moderation, moderation. He goes, and that really just means variety. He goes, they're flip sides of the same coin. And, you know, which I it's just fascinating, he's absolutely right. You know, if you if you're, if you're doing a variety of things, every individual thing you do must be being done in moderation. And I thought though this guy's dead right. follow us on Twitter, check out the Facebook page, go to the blog check out youdemonpodcast.com. there's all sorts of information over there that you might find interesting as always thanks for listening